here's what I've noticed about this time of the year is oftentimes this time of the year, we take some time, we reflect on, okay, let's be honest. We reflect on maybe how we failed to achieve the goals we set for the previous year. So we set some new goals for this year. Confident we'll fix those problems. Anyone else? No, just me. Okay, you're far better than that. You're this. You're, you're the next one. You're the ones who reflected on how much you accomplished last year, how you crushed it in this year. You're going to set the bar higher. You're going to dominate because... Um, anyway, or some of you, you're, you're like a Christmas holdover. Bah humbug. This time, like... You, you don't really wake up until about February. You're like, I'm just, the whole beginning of the year thing isn't for me. Now, today we are launching the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes for 10 weeks. And just to let you know, how did we get here? How did we get to the book of Ecclesiastes? Because if you have some maybe context in church or the Bible, God, church, and the Bible, hopefully you know something about the book of Ecclesiastes. And to get there, um, our pastoral team, as we were talking about, thinking through, and discussing the beginning of the year, um, we discussed this phenomenon that we had noticed, that, our, that as we think about the life of the church, we've, we've noticed something when it comes to people. And so these are just broad categories. This may be you. This may not be you. This may be somebody in your circle or your family. But what we've noticed here is there are seasons in life where there, there's times of purposefulness where you're really engaged in, in faith, where you're really engaged maybe in, in some goals, in, in a bigger purpose. And then there's some times in life where we've seen that people tend to disengage in faith. They kind of pull back from community. They withdraw. And this is broadly applicable in lots of areas of life, but specifically when it comes to the, the context of, of church, um, people withdraw, withdraw from faith and community and sort of wander and drift and then come back. And, then, and, and so some of these seasons that we've noticed, one of them is when you graduate from high school and go into young adult years. This is often a time when a lot of people statistically, sort of withdraw, you know, faith, maybe their faith wasn't really their own. And then this new, in this new season, they're kind of trying to figure out, was this just my parents thing? Was this my thing? And they sort of withdraw also, as we all know, young adult years are often some of the years where people look back and have some real regrets for maybe a, a few years that they weren't serving God, a few years where they were going after a bunch of things they thought would bring meaning, and they look back, and those are regrets and baggage that they carry forward into marriage and adult years. We've all seen that. And then it's interesting. We've, we've noticed as people kind of get a little bit older and begin to have kids themselves, we see a lot of people reconnect and re-engage. It's almost like, I, I want to give my kids what I had growing up. Like, that was valuable. The values, it meant something to me. The faith, um, I want to make sure my kids have what I had growing up because I didn't realize how important that was to me. But now that I have kids, I realize it. And so we've seen a lot of people sort of in this parenthood stage of life start to reconnect. And it's purposeful, right? Because you, you have a set period of time. And depending how your kids are spaced out and how many kids you have, that could be 18 years or it could be, you know, 20, 30 years. I don't know. Um, 
But it's a set period of time when you're, when you're focused on, on launching your kids into this world. And oftentimes, that framework, that goal propels us through this. And then we've watched this thing, and it's been, happened enough that, that we're like, well, I wonder what that thing is. That oftentimes, when people's kids start approaching graduation, emptiness, launching out of the house, what we've noticed is a lot of people, again, disengage. It's almost like, whew, I got my goal. You know, I raised a halfway decent set of kids, launched them out the door, and now I need some me time. And what we've noticed is in, the, in this, especially after a good goal, have you noticed there's a saying, maybe you've heard it, that success is more dangerous than failure? Boy, oh boy, I, I have observed that over the years. That oftentimes... After you, right after you reach a major goal in life that you've worked so hard to achieve, be careful because it's in those moments. Just ask King David. Uh, be careful because it's in those moments when some of your greatest regrets happen. When you disconnect from community, when you disconnect from faith, maybe when you decide I'm, I need to focus and center in a little bit more on on me. And we've just watched this pattern. And we were wondering, like, why is it that we as humanity, and this is broadly applicable beyond church, but we as um, people that, that have faith, that believe in God, that believe in following him, why is it that, that so oftentimes we reward what seems like a season of, of diligence with a season of self-focus? Why is that? Why is our thinking that that's going to be the thing that actually brings us what we're missing in that moment? And we've seen this pattern repeat as, as you get older, you know, in late, late career, people usually, uh, some, a lot of times late career is when people are just engaged and serving in church and um, involved, and then retirement. It's no, no uh, surprise. Retirement comes in again. For so many retirees, the, the focus shifts and becomes very self-focused. Now, this is broad strokes, right? Where it becomes about me and me time and golf and whatever. But, but you know, that's, that's not fulfilling, right? Which is why statistically a lot of guys retire and die shortly afterwards. It's an interesting phenomenon, something you should take notice of. But retirement comes and then oftentimes people re-engage and become really serious about faith in their... Um, later years of life. And I think there's something about this that should get our attention. I know personally, I've, I've felt sometimes the most depressed after a major success. Maybe you have too. You set a goal, you reached a goal. And, and I think, what is it, as we begin to like process through this, this thing we'd seen, this, it's like, what is it that that is in the hearts and minds of humans and us thinking that like letting go and leaning into self in these seasons will bring the thing that we're missing. What I know about us talking to a lot of people is that there are seasons in life where a lot of people who are a little bit older wish they could go back and change. They wish they could go back and adjust some things. Because it's in those seasons of life where maybe um, they disengaged and, and thought they were greener pastures and a relationship fell apart. It was in, in those moments 
where they kind of turn to self, that they regret some of the decisions and they wish they could go back and change those if they were able to live with the end in mind. And that brought us to Ecclesiastes and this series, Living Life Backward. Now, we completely stole this series title, just to give you a heads up, okay? It, it came from a, it was based on a book by a guy named Dr. Brian Gibson, uh, a teacher, um, an author from Scotland. And uh, he has this to say about the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, the book of Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts to help us live in the real world. Ecclesiastes is all about reality. And here's what you're going to find if you know anything about Ecclesiastes. It's messy. It's complicated. It's confusing. It, it makes us think. Sometimes we feel like it's depressing. Like, really? But here's the interesting thing. is Some of the early Jewish rabbis wanted to actually pull it out of the Bible because we, th- we read the book sometimes, if you've read it, and you think like, it's, it's kind of depressing. But they looked at it and they said, it's too hedonistic. Because over and over again, the author of Ecclesiastes is going to look at the complexity of life and make the, like, make the comment, it's the simple things like eating, drinking, enjoying great relationships. Enjoy that stuff. And he's going to make the conclusion that that's a good thing in life. And they looked at this and like, no, it was almost like, you know, the, the monk, like the monks also in the early church looked at this and it was like, no, like we need to withdraw and make it hard. And so they had trouble with this book too. So it's kind of complicated. And now before you hear that message, like, and you think, oh, eat, drink and live for tomorrow we die. YOLO. Anybody remember that? Before you go out the door and you're like, cool, I'm, I'm good with this. The book is going to have something to say to you about wise living. And to those of you that think, I'm going to crush it, dominate, conquer, the book's going to have something to say to you about wise living. And to those of you who are like, what's the point anyway? The book's going to have something to say to you that hopefully will encourage you a little bit about wise living with the end in sight. And so because some of you are trying to numb yourself to the pain of life, Some of you are trying to use goals to fix a soul problem. What the book of Ecclesiastes is going to do is it's going to confront those, confront a lot of things that we think will bring us satisfaction, meaning, escape, or fulfillment in life. And ultimately, it's going to lead us to ask a very valuable question. And that is, how would your life change if you lived with the reality of the end in sight? What might be different if instead of just sort of wandering through life, you begin to think of it from the perspective of what if I started at the end and looked back? What would that tell me about life? And so if you're following along in your Bibles, you can turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And in this series, we're going to be teaching out of the ESV. Um, And I'll tell you why in just a second. But so if you have an app, that's no problem. If you have a paper Bible, sorry, you got to buy a new one. But that's a good thing. This is good to read in different translations sometimes and kind of get a just you hear it a little different and observe things you haven't. So this is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we see this word. He introduces himself as the preacher. 
So the author introduces the words of Solomon, the preacher, the king of David. Um, the preacher is one who gathers the assembly, the Koholeth. And the king of David, Solomon, tradition teaches us, uh, church tradition and, and Jewish history teaches us, this is, Sol, uh, this is Solomon, the king of David. As you read these words, it's like, who else in the world could this be? And as Solomon, um, what you got to know and what you have to learn about Solomon if you don't know anything about him, he's the son of David, He's a young man, and God actually, it's this amazing kind of scene where God um, appears, God speaks to him in a dream, and it's almost like, like Aladdin, like genie, you get three wishes, but he gets one wish. Um, God actually says, God is impressed with the way that he has a heart and honors him, and he says, hey, ask me what you want. And Solomon said, I don't know, I'm young, I don't know how to lead these people. Lord, God, give me wisdom. And God's like, what a great answer. I'm going to give you more wisdom than anyone who has ever lived. And beyond that, because you weren't all like, like all these other losers and just asked for a bunch of riches, I'm going to give you that too, beyond your wildest dreams. And God blesses Solomon. At this point in history, the kingdom of Israel becomes like the superpower in the whole region. Solomon becomes incredibly wealthy. In fact, the queen of Sheba comes up from Egypt, and she's like, I couldn't, I heard all these rumors about you, Solomon. I couldn't believe it. And now I'm here. I can't believe just the wealth and you're, to hear the wisdom coming from you. I am blown away. Solomon had uh, incredible wealth. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a big harem. That's a lot of women. Um, just to put that in context, th this will make you question his wisdom. Um, <laughs> what you got to understand is a couple of things. Now, number one, that's, that would be kind of hard to juggle, right? I mean, some, some of you guys get in trouble. This is one date night every three years. Yeah. But what you have to understand about these, uh, these wives is many of these wives, because this is how it worked in the ancient world, this was about treaties. And so what this means, they, you know, you, you marry a king's daughter, and all of a sudden you have relationship, you have treaties, you have network and connection with that whole nation. What this means is Solomon was the most connected man in the world like networked, connected, had the most relationships. So he has not only all this wisdom given from God, which is different than, than just being smart. He has a God-given wisdom and understanding of how life really works. And then beyond that, um, he has all, more connections than anybody on the face of the earth. He's connected to all these different, you know, great leaders and systems of thinking and government and, and understands all these different religions. And then he's got all this wealth, success, big armies, palaces. Put it this way. Solomon, just so you can understand it. Solomon is smarter than Albert Einstein. He's richer than Elon Musk, which a few months ago, since Tesla stock went down, would have been a lot richer than now, right? And uh, he had more women than Hugh Hefner. And if you don't know who that is, that's good. Um, I'm glad. He had more success, more fame, more sex than you could ever hope to experience in this life. That's the point. And that's why his insight is so critical for us to listen to. 
Because he's going to come to us. He's going to say, hey, I have tasted all the world had to offer. I have had it all. I have tried it all. But then I also experienced an incredible despair when I, when I set out to try it all, and it just didn't do it for me. It didn't fill that place in my soul. But I finally figured out what was really worth living for. So this is a guy you want to listen to. You would be wise to hear the words of someone with this much experience. And here's how he is going to set up his book. The preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Here's his first observation about life. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. (laughs) Anybody like, well, I'm glad I came to church today, right? (laughs) Vanity. Now, here's why we're in ESV, because it uses the word vanity largely, and um, the NIV uses the word meaningless. Meaningless. But here's what the word means in Hebrew. Hebel. It means literally a vapor or a breath. So the idea isn't like meaningless. The word in English doesn't really carry it. Vanity, not really either as much, but we don't use that word as much in modern culture, right? Uh, Vanity, maybe you think of, you know, somebody primping themselves in front of a mirror for hours, you know, exercising their pecs, the high school kid exercising his pecs. But really, here's the heart behind vanity. Here's the heart behind this word. The idea is that that it doesn't last. Life is vain in the fact that you can't grasp it. You can't hold on to it. In fact, he's going to talk about a vapor of breath as like something you try to grasp, but it just slips out of your hand. It doesn't amount to anything in the end. It's not that it's, it's, not that it's meaningless. The, the point is that even if it's good and has meaning, it doesn't last. You can't hang on to it. It, it escapes your grasp. It's finite. Here's a, here's a few different ways to think about this and think about this Hebrew word, habel. Number one, one of the implications of this, and you know this, it's that life doesn't last that long, Correct? How many of you sometime in the last month have used a phrase like, time flies? Yeah, if you have kids or grandkids, you've used this frequently, haven't you? Time flies. You're like, wow. Now, if you're under 30, you you don't feel the weight of this as much. You still feel this. But man, when you get like up to 40, you start going, time flies. How did this happen? I I heard this this quote that... uh, I don't remember. I read so much this week. I don't remember who said it, but here's what it was. Inside every old person's body is a young person wondering what happened. Can anybody say amen in the room? Yeah. I know you're, I still feel like, like I'm the young adult, like guitar guy, you know? And then I look at myself, I'm like, no, you're not. (laughs) And I've talked to people like in their 60s and 70s, the same thing. See, the, the root of habel, habel, it's this vapor, it's this mist, it's something you can't grasp a hold of. Like, you look up, I'm like, how is my kid almost taller than me? We're, we're, we're getting ready to celebrate 10 years as a church. How did that happen? How did that go by so fast? There's a, the root of the word habel is also used in, in a very famous um, proverb, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain or fleeting. It's not that beauty is meaningless. 
Beauty is beautiful. It just doesn't last forever. It's fleeting. This is, to understand this, this is like you benching your high school weight and then searching for icy hot packs on Amazon later that day. (laughs) This is the 65-year-old in ripped skinny jeans and a sports car. And I'm like, "Mm, you're trying pretty hard there. Now, ladies, I tried to find some illustrations for you, but I realize you don't have any. You just stay 29, and, and that's it. So life, life is, it goes by quickly. That's part of what he means here. And the other one is life is hard to, to control or wrap your hands around it. Have you noticed that? Like, you, you had a plan in a relationship, and you tried to control it. It didn't go the way you thought. You, you quickly realized you couldn't control it. I remember coming out of all this construction that we did a few years ago, 2019, going into 2020. Great momentum. January, February, great momentum. This is cool. We're crushing it. <laughs> and then March 2020 happened. Shut everything down. And you and us and every, like, all of our plans got put on hold, right? It was, a, it was a strange, strange season. Perhaps for some of you this year, like, you got something completely out of left field. Some of you, you're going to buy a, your dream house, and then interest rates went up, and you're like, well, I guess a one-bedroom apartment is our dream house. Psalms puts it this way when it comes to life and our finiteness. He says, as for man, as for humankind, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place, and its place knows it no more. Rise up. Woo, look at that. That's pretty. It's gone. That's the idea. Feeling positively encouraged? Here's the thing. At some level, we know this, don't we? We all know that life is fast. I mean, we say it all the time. We all know that life is fleeting. I think if we're honest and we evaluate our lives, most of us live a good share of our life like the absolute opposite is true, don't we? Like it's just going to keep going on. Like there's all the time in the world to get to the most important things. In fact, we come up with all kinds of ways to distract ourselves from the reality of what Solomon says here. And the preacher, he's going to say, Wake up. Stop pretending. Because you're pretending it's going to go. It's not. And the first step, if you want to realize this, is, is to wake up and actually confront the reality and begin to live life backward. And so he goes on, and now what he's going to do is he's going to drive his point home. Here's what he says. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. It's like, okay, you don't believe me that this whole thing's like a vapor, a breath? What does man gain or literally profit by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Profit, the idea behind gain or profit in the Hebrew is something left over, something to show for it in the end, something you can take with you. And the answer that's implied here is nothing. Nothing. 
Everything you're working so hard for, you don't get to take it with you. You've heard the saying, naked you come into the world, naked you leave. Some of you, maybe you'll get buried in a suit. You're born in your birthday suit. Some of you will get buried, uh, buried in a really nice suit. That's not going to last very long either. <laughs> the worm, uh, was it uh, oh, some Rousseau or Pascal, some famous philosophers, like the worm is the ultimate victor in life. So he's going to eat everybody. The rich, the poor, the kings. You're like, I'm so glad I came. I feel so encouraged right now. I mean, think about this, because he's writing at a time, the Queen of Sheba comes up, Egypt, this is like pyramids everywhere with these kings, the greatest in the society are like, we're going to build these huge monuments to ourselves, and then we're going to bury inside, have you ever, anybody like Egypt documentaries? My wife's obsessed with them, she loves them, and so we've watched a lot of them, and like, you know, they're like, we're going to bury all this stuff because they believe we could take it all with us. If we have it in our tomb, it comes with us. So, you know, they'd mummify themselves and then they'd mummify. Well, I think they'd have someone mummify them. But the point is, <laughs> they'd mummify servants and wives. I mean, yeah, you didn't want to be a wife in, in that, like, hey, you ready to be a mummy? Not really. Too bad. Um, they'd, be, they'd mummify them. And they'd stick all this gold and utensils and all this and food and grain uh, for the next life. And then um, what happens? It sits there, right? And if a tomb raider doesn't get it, it's going to sit there a couple thousand years. And an archaeologist is going to dig it up. And he's going to take it and he's going to put it in the British Museum. And then some little, like, older brother is going to take his little brother, and they're going to come and stare at the creepy little mummy face of you, oh, great king. And he's going to go, boo, and freak his little sister out. And that's going to be your life. <laughs> you can't take it with you. And so he says, what gain is there under the sun? And this is a really important phrase. This phrase, under the sun, will come up over and over again in this book. And, and, and because here's what Solomon, here's what he's trying to do, is he studied all kinds of world religions and systems and systems of thinking. And what he's going to do is say, you want life without the one true God? Here's what it's going to look like. You want life just as we know it here from a naturalistic perspective? Here's what it's going to look like. Under the sun, here and now, this is what meaning can be found here and now without really God in the picture, without eternity in the picture. In fact, Jesus would come around and, and what man, Jesus, he talks about Solomon and all his glory the apostles draw from Solomon. This is part of the reason we take these books so seriously is because Jesus and the, the apostles take them very seriously. And Jesus comes around and he's going to draw on this and he's going to say, what, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That what, what does it gain? Like you, you can't take it with you, can you? What does it gain to give everything you have and in the end have nothing to show for it? See, here's the thing. Humanity, we all know that something is broken in the world, don't we? We all know it. If you come from a naturalist perspective that everything, you know, just started with a, a bang and it's all natural processes and forward progress and mutations and all of this, it really, at its core, at its philosophical core, there really is no meaning to existence. 
And this is what our culture has been based on for the last couple hundred years now, is this thinking has become so ingrained. Is it any wonder people live such directionless lives? That there's so much turmoil in our culture? See, and, and, and the preacher's going to come around, and he's going to, he's going to speak to us, and he's going to confront our tendency to take really good things some of them really good things, education, success, wealth, pleasure, friends. And he's not going to say it has no value. In fact, he's going to find the value in the simplicity. But he's going to confront our thinking that somehow we're going to find what's ultimate in these things. That we can take finite things, even good things, and find something of ultimate fulfillment or significance in these things. And he's going to ask and confront us with this question of, do you really, do you really want to live like this? He's going to tell us you need a reality bigger than the here and now. And ultimately, he'll hint at an answer that wouldn't, wouldn't appear until 900 years later when Jesus would come and he'll say, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Like you're alive, technically, but you're just existing. In me, there's real life. So that's where this story is headed. But, but to get there, you have to first confront the, this reality. The reality of your finiteness. The reality of your mortality. And then from that, you got to begin to live life backward. And so he says, what does a man gain? What does a man gain? And he wants us to think seriously about this, about all the things we work so hard to pursue. He goes on, he says, let me illustrate this this way. And the rest, these next few verses are all an answer to the question, what does a man gain? And listen to this, because it's some of the most beautiful poetry in all of literature in the history of the world. As you listen to some of this, in fact, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to hear stuff and you're like, oh, that's a song. Oh, that's where that came from. Here's what he says. What does the man gain here? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind on its circuits. The wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. Isn't that beautiful and depressing? <laughs> and here's what he's saying. Hey, if you just observe nature, you see cycles. If you just observe nature without a Swedish teenage girl telling you it's all ending, um, you would conclude that it all just goes around in cycles, in small cycles, in big cycles. The sea's never full. Have you noticed that? 
The river's just going in, you know, the cycle of evaporation. But as he sees this, he, there's, there's a tie to our lives, right? Because people are similarly insatiable. Have you noticed this about yourself? That you're never satisfied. That the eye never has enough of seeing. There's all, I mean, have you noticed this just scrolling social media? It's like there's never an end, is there? You keep going. Yeah. I want to see something new, something novel, something life-changing. Cat video. There's no end, right? Or you've noticed there's never enough money? Like, seriously, most of us have never stopped to ask the question, how much is enough money? It's just more is the answer, right? <laughs> In fact, some of you, you're making, like, if, you're, if your college self could see how much money you would make now, they'd be like, whoa, you've got it made, and you're still stressed out of your mind. <laughs> how much is enough? We never stop to ask these questions. It's a, honestly, if we're honest, life is a lot like an old movie. Anybody remember Groundhog Day? Groundhog Day, yeah. If, you, if you're like under 30, you probably never saw it. Just go back, watch it. It's great. Bill Murray, it's really funny. But the, the basic plot is he wakes up um, on Groundhog Day like over and over and over again. Everybody else is like going through life in the same exact pattern, and he wakes up and has to do life. And so... He, 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 at first he hates it, and then he figures out, I've got a new lease on life. And so he says, I'm going to be, become a better version of myself. And so he begins to learn the piano and learn foreign languages and become this amazing, like, doing all these amazing things and being a better version of himself. Goals. He's going to fix his soul problem with goals. And then he figures out pretty soon that that doesn't fulfill the need in his life. And he despairs. It's like solo. It's like this book in a, in a nutshell. And he despairs and tries to like take himself out, you know, and that doesn't work. And finally he figures out the point of it is that life isn't about himself. And it's a really interesting movie. It's like a treadmill. Sometimes life feels like that, right? I mean, honestly, you get up, you probably eat the same two or three things for breakfast every day, go to the same drive through for your coffee, or if you're like Dave Ramsey it, you know, you grind the beans yourself. I've got my morning routine. I've got my set caffeination schedule. It works well for me. <laughs> I am a creature of habit, and I know a lot of you are too. Eat at the same two or three places for lunch. Oh, you think there's a lot of variety? Not really. You do the same thing, you sit at the same desk, you have many of the same conversations, you talk about the weather with your coworkers. So much of life is repetitive, isn't it? It's like, no, I'm gonna make my mark on this world, really? Really? For so many, you see, the realization Solomon's having in this is, I am going to live my life and in the grand scheme of things, what do I leave behind? The world keeps on spinning. Before me, after me. You glad you came today? Happy New Year. He goes on. He says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it can be said, see, this is new? It, is already, it has been already in the ages before us. And you're thinking, oh, time out. Oh, what about technology? 
Now, first off, there's more forgotten than we know about. Um, I, I watched this really interesting documentary. I'm kind of fascinated with like ancient civilizations. And, and I watched this interesting documentary. There's this place in Peru called Sasquaman. And, uh, and you have these crazy, um, like huge giant boulders. You can see that, that lady, you can barely see her in the photo. I mean, multiple tons. And here's the amazing thing about this is like some of these rocks, you can't even fit a paper in between them. Even with our modern technology today, this would be very difficult. Uh, in fact, there's another wall in Cusco um, of this like ancient technology that they ascribe to the Incans, but many people think this might have been like a, a really ancient civilization that we don't know anything about um, because these rocks, the precision, this super hard rock that it's carved with and you can't even like slide a knife blade between it. It's like, how did they do that? And we're like, we don't know. And there's lots of things like that in history. The point is we think we're just so advanced and everything was so backward and you no. Know, but here's the thing, even though, now so, the teacher's not telling us that nothing new will ever be invented. That's not the point. The point is that even with humanity, or, or even with technology, rather, humanity's overall ability to address the reality of their situation, their soul hunger remains the same. You notice that? We're always looking for something new or novel that'll bring us satisfaction, aren't we? Come on, and it does for like 15 minutes. You get the newest model phone, and you're like, yeah, it's so fast. And then like 15 minutes later, the new model comes out, and you're like, ah. For me, it's guitar pedals. Uh, true confession, I've noticed this stuff. I had this confession with the other pastors. And they absolved me, I'm just kidding. But I, I noticed that, like, for me, it's about the quest for the new and the best. Because I have, like, I've been researching and I order some of the best guitar pedals. And then they sit in my basement and I barely ever play them. I got the best. But I guess it didn't do it for me. Now you're like, <laughs> you can judge me, but you have one too, don't you? You have something like that or something's like that. And probably yours are more expensive than mine. Don't you? We're always looking for something new to fill that place. And the point, according to Dr. Gibson, is there's nothing new we can, dis we can ever discover to break the cycle and so satisfy us. That's the point of the teacher. He goes on. And this is, where this is the last verse in this section. He says this, There is no remembrance of former things, nor there will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. See, for so many, we're like, not me. I'm going to make my mark on this world. My name's going to be in the history books. Not real likely. Not real likely. In fact, let me illustrate it this way. Um, how many of you in the room, how many of you know your grandparents' grandparents' names? Okay. How many of you that just raised your hands know that information because you recently did Ancestry.com? Yeah. Okay. That doesn't count. Sorry. <laughs> I know one of my 
great, great grandparents' names, Goma, because she had these amazing crepe pancakes that the recipe still lives on in our family. But we don't make it much anymore. Who knows if my kids will know Goma. That's interesting. Here's what that means, that if you're a grandparent, and I know we got a lot of grandparents in the room, your grandchildren's grandkids, to them, you will be the forgotten generation. That's not very much time. In fact, l let me do it this way. I, I, I made a slide. Uh, it has a one on it. You are one. I know this is very deep philosophy. Everybody hold up a one. You are one. Okay. Thank you. Now, let me just ask you a question. Uh, how many of you can name off some names from history that are over er, before 1900? And we're just going to do this quick. Now, here's the rule. No Bible names. Okay? No Bible names. Other than Bible names, because you're in church, how many of you can name off some, some names from history? Go quick. Okay? Hercules, okay. You watch Marvel movies lately? Okay. Aristotle, Plato, okay. Good job. You nine o'clock crew, you're on the ball. All right, we got, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 names, right? I bet if we sat and we did that for an hour, 30 minutes, we could come up with a list of a couple hundred names. You were one. That was a couple hundred. Now, now here's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to see, like, in the context of the people that have lived in humanity, how does that work out? And so you are one. I'm going to shrink it down. You can see that. Who, eye test. Hand over your eye. Let's see who can see that. Who can see that? Hand over one eye. Okay. Still a lot of you. Okay, you are one. That's you. Now, I, I decided to fit as many ones on the screen as I could, and so I did. And yes, I typed and copied and pasted all that. How many of you can still pick out that, that little yellow one in the middle? Yeah, some of you with really good eyes. Um, there, that, that is 15, let me check, that is 15,145 ones. That screen is only about a tenth of the population of our, of our area, right? Now, here, here's the context. Out of, I wanted to know how many people ever lived on this earth. I, so I emailed my dad. He's a really smart mathematician, scientist, does this kind of thing. So I did some online research, and I'm like, all right, let's, let's get it. What's a conservative, like, low number? And he, he did some research and came back to me. He said, pro low number, probably about 60 billion. Point is, we don't really know, but 60 billion, some of the high numbers up past 100 billion. 60 billion people that have lived on this planet, let's say, in the last four or five, 6,000 years. And... Here's what that means. You, one out of 15,000, here's, here, to put that in context, you would need, of these screens, these screens, I did the math, you would need four million screens full of names to pick out your little one. Four million. That's 9,000 miles of screens. You could stretch these screens coast to coast three times and you're one out of maybe the couple hundred names we can come up with. 
See, Mark Twain said something along these lines. The world will lament you for an hour and then forget you forever. And this is just the truth of reality. Some of you may make a mark on history. Some of you may land in a history book that kids will learn about in high school and then promptly forget. But it's not likely. It's not likely anybody's going to be talking about me in 100 years or remembering the great things I did. Not likely. Not likely. And here's the problem is we spend a great deal of effort in life distracting us from this reality, from the truth that we will live and we will die. And so we distract ourselves many times with good things like a new job or success or raising good children. Sometimes we distract ourselves with bad things, trying to like just put it out of our mind, whether that's substance abuse or whatever, workaholic, being a workaholic. Sometimes we distract ourselves with good things like getting married or, or staying single or going through or getting our laundry list done like one day and then have you noticed it's back the next day? <laughs> if you ever want an exercise in futility, it's called having small children in your house, right? <laughs> or making more money this year or this year I'm going to accomplish my goals. I'm not going to give up the gym after three weeks. I'm going to make it to five weeks. Do you know that your great-great-grandparents probably stressed about some of the same things? But you don't know any of that, do you? Life is short. Isn't it? We had an amazing uh, illustration of that this week as we watched, you know, the nation came together and watched a pro football player, prime of life, fighting for his life. And the whole nation was reminded of this truth. Life, there's no guarantees whether you live 20-some years or 80-some years or 100 years. Life is short. Life is short. Here's the reality of life under the sun. You are human. You are a creature. You are finite. You are not God. You are not in control. You will not live forever. This is reality. And the reality, when you talk about what gain, what can you take with you in this life, when you find your meaning and your context under the sun, when you try to place your meaning there, what can you carry with you? The answer is a big, fat nothing. Nothing. Nothing you can grasp and hold on to. And so here's the question for you. And I know this, this has been a very serious start to a, a series. There's going to be hope. You've got to come back next week. Solomon's going to get to the, some of the good stuff, okay? But here's the question. How would your life change if you lived with the reality of the end in sight? How would your life change? If instead of trying to distract yourself and pretend like so many of us do that this isn't the truth, if you accepted the reality and then began to look backwards and structure your life with the reality in mind, how might your life change? See, the preacher's goal here is to, for us to start with the end in sight and to actually shake you a little bit. This first chapter is to, to shake you up and go, oh yeah, oh wow, it's a reality check. To shake you 
enough to confront the reality of your mortality and begin to live life in a different perspective. Why? Why does he want to do this? It's because it's only through living life backward that you will learn to live with real wisdom about life and with freedom, actually, counterintuitive, but with freedom and hope in life and with generosity, and with open hands. And also, it's only through this perspective that you will learn to truly enjoy the small things in life the way that God designed you to enjoy them without making them the ultimate things and basing your life and your satisfaction on them. It's only through doing this that you will experience that. And the, and the message, as you wrestle with this question this week, I think if you're a skeptic and you're like, I don't know about all this God, church, and the Bible thing, this is a great series because this is a guy who has researched every system of thinking ever and is going to bring some insight on that. And his question is, do you really want to base your view of reality just here under the sun? Do you really want it? Do you think that's going to provide you with the meaning and, and hope and a frame of reference to really enjoy and live this life the way it was meant to be lived? And for the believer, here's the probing question. Because already, I mean, we have a bunch of information, don't we? We have a whole New Testament that comes back. Solomon didn't have information about the resurrection and about Jesus and about life eternal. And so the question for you and I as we wrestle with this question is, Why are you living like under the sun is the ultimate reality? How does that make sense? Why would you do that? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? That's a question for a Christian to ask. Why would you orient your whole life under the sun trying to find? Because this is what so many believers do is tuck in their back pocket an insurance policy for eternity and meanwhile going to try, try to find their meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment under the sun. And what we're going to watch is, is Solomon tell us, I tried. I want to give you some wisdom. I want to help you understand some things about that so that you can live with peace, so that you can place priority on the things that matter most in life. And next week, he's going to give us some answers. But this week, the preacher's goal is to get us to wrestle with this reality, with this question. Would you stand? Let's read this one time out loud. I want you to take this home and wrestle with it a little bit this week. How would your life change if you lived with the reality of the end in sight? Would you wrestle with that this week? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for my friends. And Lord, as we enter this uh, series, it's going to be a lot of fun. But beyond that, it's going to get us to ask some really important questions. Would you orient our hearts and minds to actually hear your voice speaking to us? As we learn about wisdom and principles and the way that you've designed this life and the fact that we live in a broken world and what that should mean. Would you help us think about our life from a framework that's bigger than just under the sun? And in that, would we find great meaning, great significance? Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you came and gave us hope in this world. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.